Today on Pay It For, we have Tierra Thomas. Tierra is the local partnerships communications coordinator at SC First Steps. Uh, she is a marketing and communications professional with healthcare, nonprofit, and government agency experience. She enjoys being a resource to others by simplifying information into comprehensive formats. Uh, she's also very passionate about health literacy and women's health, especially black maternal health. So, Tierra, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. Excited <laughs> so let, to be What? Excited to be here. <laughs> me too. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, where are you from? I am from Columbia, South Carolina. Been there your whole life? Uh, pretty much until a few years ago, I moved to Charleston for my first big girl job. So South Carolina girl through and through. Okay. So what did you want to be when you grew up? And I only asked this because I know you're super into dance. So I'm wondering what a young Tierra thought she would be when she grew up. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess way back when, probably in like kindergarten or first grade, I was, um, I think I wanted to be a teacher because mm -hmm. I liked my teacher so much. And I was like, wow, I want to make someone like me as much as I like her. Mm -hmm. And so um, I know then I wanted to be a teacher. It changed a few times. And um, I think I wanted to do dance at one point. Um, and in college, undergrad, my interests changed a whole lot. So I started out as um, undecided. And then I thought I wanted to do pharmacy. And then I thought I wanted to go into econ. And so there's just <laughs> a lot of different things that I thought I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. That's a lot. So teacher, dance, pharmacy, econ. Now I know you're a communicator. So, but I feel like for the teacher and dance part, I feel like there's like a performance aspect that weaves through both of those. Um, mm -hmm. The teaching is really interesting just because of the, some of the things that I know you've done um, that we'll talk about later, but okay, cool. So you are at SC First Steps right now. So what is First Steps and what do they do? Yeah. So South Carolina First Steps, is a school readiness nonprofit organization. And what they do is, you know, they have a lot of different programs to help parents and families get their children ready for kindergarten. Um, because, you know, a lot of people think you just, you know, send your kid off to school, but there are a lot of things that parents and families can do in the meantime to get their kids ready to go to school. So um, that's what we do. And there's like a ton of programs and we do it. Um, there's a local partnership in every county across the state. So there's 46. Um, and I actually work at the state office, which is in Columbia. And I help the local partnerships figure out their communications, you know, if anything comes up that they have questions about, um, if they need templates and different things like that, I help them with their annual reports. Um, so it could be a number of different things. Okay. So 
sorry, I am scribbling down some things that I want to circle back to later. Yeah. Um, so first of all, from your first initial thought as a kid of being a teacher to now working at First Steps, I feel like you closed the loop. Um, maybe not as a teacher, but helping, you know? Yeah. So how did you first come across First Steps? First of all, it seems like they have a lot going on across the whole state for like 46 counties. You were working at the state office, sort of helping everybody out. I felt like that's a lot going on. So how did you first find out about First Steps and... Um, you know, how do you think that going to the state office might be different from being able to focus on like one county? Yeah, so I found first steps. I think I was just on, um, I was looking to move to Columbia specifically from Charleston um, and to um, work in a different setting. So I was in like, hospital, very large, and I was looking to go into something more nonprofit and kind of grass, grassroots efforts mm. um, to be closer to the community. Um, and so I did not even know about First Steps. I found it um, just through searching different job uh, apps, like LinkedIn, Indeed, things like that. And then I found the job posting. And that's when I started digging through and looking at their mission and things like that and learning that, you know, they don't just focus on school readiness per se, but they, you know, it's kind of a well-rounded organization and they focus on, you know, like health screenings and things like that as well for kids and being that, I did my undergrad in public health. That was kind of like a um, a good thing for me because it kind of, you know, matched up with my interests and my studies as well. Yeah. So the second thing I want to highlight there. So if the the teacher to first steps was one, and then at some point you were thinking pharmacy in undergrad, <laughs> you ended up. Uh, so you were doing public health in undergrad. You're thinking pharmacy, and you ended up at a telehealth place. Uh, around a hospital. So I feel like that's two loops closed. So I just <laughs> wanted to say that <laughs> there's a lot of connections. Um, yeah. So, okay, you started at First Steps in March of this year. So that's literally when everybody was told, don't come to the office, go home and work from home. And at the beginning, it was 14 days and it is now October and we're still working from home. So my question is this, you started in March, you didn't have much time in the office, you know, what has been your experience sort of, you know, being onboarded, uh, probably mostly virtually, like, what was your, just tell me about how you started at a place and then immediately didn't see anybody in person. <laughs> yeah. So I, yes, I started in March. I actually did all my interviews and everything in person, but when I started in March, um, I felt like I was there for maybe a week, a week and a half. I was able to go to a conference, meet most of the executive directors from across the state because we just happened to have um, one of our quarterly meetings right before everything happened with COVID. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it everything shut down. We were constantly checking emails and seeing, you know, what the governor was saying about staying at home or continuing to work from the office. Um, and so finally, you know, it was 
kind of, uh, it was a lot starting out because I, you know, I barely had my phone set up. I was still trying to figure out my passwords for everything. And um, we also have like two-factor verification. So I had to figure all that out before I could even, you know, work from home like everyone else. But um, yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. But, you know, once it all came together, uh, it was, <laughs> it worked out. It worked out. So I'm at home now. <laughs> so, I mean, were there any like tips or tricks or things that you felt really helped sort of um, get to know everyone or get to know like, you know, how to find all your passwords and that kind of thing? Were there just like, were there uh, people you reached out to? Or you found out, yeah, like you found like allies to sort of help you onboard? Were, were there like what helped you sort of overcome the awkwardness or the, the hardness really of onboarding virtually? Yeah. So I actually, you know, I was talking about the conference that we had to attend or that we attended right before COVID started. And so that kind of got me acquainted with a few of my coworkers. And so I felt more comfortable reaching out to them if I had questions while I was working from home. Um, I meet with, uh, a few of my coworkers regularly to just kind of talk through the culture and how things work. And, um, you know, it's, I definitely feel like the, uh, the period of time that it usually takes me to get on onboarded is extended because of COVID. Um, because usually maybe four months, I'd feel like, okay, I know what to do next. But like, here we are in October in the fall. And now I'm like, okay, I I think I have the swing of this now. Um, Setting up different recurring meetings and things like that. So yeah, I, you know, to answer your question, yes, I have been uh, in touch with a few of my coworkers one-on-one to get to know the organization more. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it definitely helps to have that person who can like play point and like give you the lowdown on stuff and yes. tell you how everything works <laughs> for sure. Um, okay. So at First Steps, you are a local partnerships communications coordinator, correct? Yes. Okay. Just making sure I, cause I didn't ask you that at the top. <laughs> so I'm like, did I say the wrong <laughs> title? Um, so I, and you mentioned like you help uh, with annual reports, templates, um, and pretty much anything that comes up from these 46 counties, which seems like a lot. So I wanted to ask like, what is sort of the breakdown of your responsibilities? Cause you mentioned templates. So that makes me think graphic design, but you mentioned annual reports, which makes me think like more like traditional, like internal like communications or something like that. Or I guess if it's an annual report, it might be public facing, but like, can what's like the breakdown is like, are you like half graphic design, half like, traditional communications is it like you know as part of that do you have any media outreach like what what are the buckets that a lot of your work falls under because it sounds like a lot and 46 <laughs> counties probably have 46 different things that they're doing right. so like what's what's your breakdown of work <laughs> yeah um so basically all of the above <laughs> that you said <laughs> um it's interesting because you know all 46 counties are different 
and some of them have their own marketing staff and so they might not need as much uh, support from the state office as others. Um, so it's just working with the different counties to figure out, you know, if anyone needs anything uh, outside of the norm of what we provide to them. Um, for instance, some of them are working on getting websites up. Um, and then others are working on email domain, different things like that. Um, so there's definitely a little bit of tech in my role as well. Um, so I'm just trying to think of some more examples of things that I might do. But yeah, um, press release, I do some of those. Um, I'll create templates and you know the local partnerships actually do their own outreach to the press um, using that template and I yes graphic design is turning out to be a pretty huge part of my role right now um, because even internally at the state office we have a local partnership team mm -hmm. um, who kind of work as liaisons with the executive direct sorry and like tongue-tied, the, the executive directors at those local partnerships to help them with more operational things. And so a lot of times the local partnership team will ask me for different things to help with their, uh, you know, to aid them in helping the local partnerships. Yeah, so essentially you do everything. <laughs> I do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, before we get to the rest where we kind of talk career path stuff, you know, work stuff, um, I wanted to you throw it over to you. Like, what, what, is there anything on your mind today that you want to talk about? Like, what's going on with you? Um, I have some ideas on just things that I know you've done that would be um, cool to talk about right here, but I wanted to throw it over to you and, and be like, you know, what's kind of, what's on your mind when you want to talk about? Yeah, sure. I will definitely say I have been taking advantage of all the virtual opportunities during the pandemic. Um, since a lot of organizations are offering webinars and um, conferences for free and virtual and it's just, you can't beat it. And so for instance, I recently went to a uh, movie screening, or it was a documentary screening of the birth of, sorry, tongue-tied again, <laughs> the business of birth control uh, a couple weeks ago. And so that was hosted by Mama Glow and they're based in New York. So just thinking about location where I am, I would like, there's no chance that I would have seen any of that if, uh, you know, if COVID wasn't among us and if <laughs> everything was not virtual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue because, um, I know that you're super passionate about health literacy, health communications, black maternal health, women's health. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about health communications first. And since you brought up the business of birth control, I felt like that was a pretty good, um, lead in so yeah. 
you know, what is it, I guess, about health communications in general that gets you really fired up? You know, what, what gets you going? Yeah. So, um, just thinking about my past specifically, uh, when I was in, I guess, middle school, I was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. I actually ran into some health problems myself where, um, I just had like constant nausea and cramps and none of my doctors could figure it out. And so I finally ended up having to get like an exploratory surgery and um, they found out that there was a cyst on my fallopian tube and they removed it and all of that. But just thinking about the different, uh, all the different um, procedures I had to go through um, and then all the questions I was asked about, you know, there were a few times where uh, providers didn't believe me when I said I wasn't sexually active. And so just uh, my experience with that, I'm very passionate specifically about women's health and making sure that women um, can advocate for themselves in those types of situations and knowing as much as they can before stepping foot into um, doctor's offices or different providers. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's wild that even at such a young age, um, you straight up were not believed, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So, okay. I get where you're coming from with that. Um, So your master's thesis, which was something I was going to talk about later, but we will bring it up now. Your master's thesis. So spoiler alert, Tierra has a master's degree. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So your thesis during your master's program was specifically about black maternal health. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of see where you might've come up with that topic. <laughs> yes. um, but can you explain to me? So along with, so some of the things you just mentioned were, you, you know, you weren't believed you were having these health problems. There's uh, you're passionate about just the education aspect of it. Um, I assume there's probably an aspect of it of just, you know, having power over your own body in these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you explain some of the things that maybe we should be aware of about black maternal health specifically um, that people listening might not be aware of that I might not be aware of? Like, What were some of the things that, um, you know, everybody should know just in general about black maternal health? Ah, oh, yeah. That I know is... it's a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a big question. Um, So I guess I can start by telling you a little bit more about how I picked my topic for my thesis and some of the things that I learned throughout the process. And so I actually, yeah, like you said, public health, women's health has been my passion for, you know, a while now. And so I obviously knew that I wanted to, you know, base my topic around that and so I had no idea what I was going to look at Um, but you know in I guess maybe February with all the you know what's going on with racial tension um, I thought you know there's got to be something I can do to speak to race 
as well in my project. Mm -hmm. And so I thought back to, um, there was a time when Beyonce and Serena Williams both came out about having complications during their pregnancies. And so, you know, they kind of brought to light the disparity between black and white women when it comes to um, birthing outcomes. And so that's, I was like, I, I have to do this, especially, you know, just thinking about even celebrities that big with so much money and status still going through this. And so, you know, it was something where I felt compelled to like want to find out why. And so I, um, for my research, I actually listened to the natal podcast on Spotify. Um, I think it's in other, on other platforms as well, but, um, they had just started um, this year. And so it was just, it all fell into place. It was perfect timing. So I listened to um, some episodes of that and uh, found some common themes about the different stories. And so um, just for those of you who don't know, the Natal podcast is um, a docu-series about um, black birthing parents and their experiences um, during the pregnancy continuum. And so each podcast was a different person reliving their experience through finding out they were pregnant all the way through postpartum. And so I listened to those found some themes. And then I also looked at like medical documents specifically for OBGYN residents and doctors, providers to figure out if there was maybe like a, some themes that were missing or there from the stories that I heard. So just kind of trying to compare and contrast those themes from those two sources. Um, so yeah, that was my research. <laughs> And I think the biggest thing, I mean, I don't, it's sad to say that it wasn't a surprise to me to find that um, some women felt like a lack of agency or um, they felt uninformed about different things. And so I, I looked a lot into um, ways to combat that and I found out about doulas and midwives and I never knew the difference between them and so just learning about the just learning that there are so many different options for birthing besides you know going to the hospital and coming back home and so I think that's the biggest thing I learned is just you know there's options and not saying that there's anything wrong with birthing in the hospital but just knowing that there are those options and that you don't have to do you know maybe what your parents or your grandparents did so mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing i took from it yeah in my very 
So there's a lot that I wanted to follow up on there because <laughs> there's a lot of topics that you just brought up. But in my very, very um, barely scratching, or probably didn't even scratch the surface, um, education. That so I took a. Let me take a step back because I'm just talking without even <laughs> telling you why I'm talking. So uh, I was an anthropology major in undergrad, and as part of that, I took a medical anthropology course. I took a gender. Uh, studies course, which was like, it was a combination women's studies, um, but also just like a, a gender of anthropology course. So um, there was a lot uh, said about pregnancy in general in that course, but I also took a medical anthropology course, which was all the ways in which uh, non-Western medicine um, has value and that we in this Western, you know, United States culture may not even you know consider it mm -hmm. and doulas and midwives definitely came up i don't remember what the difference is so i was gonna ask <laughs> you like what is the difference um yeah so before i ask you that i wanted to say um one of the things that stuck with me from that class uh specifically the medical anthropology class was uh, and you kind of hinted at this when you mentioned like nothing's wrong with birthing in the hospital but one thing that i very vividly remember having an aha moment about was if you go to the hospital to have your baby, the, the underlying uh, sort of, you know, the whole thing of a hospital is that people with problems go to hospitals. People with conditions go to hospitals. Mm -hmm. People with diseases go to hospitals. And just the act of birthing in a hospital treats your pregnancy as this condition that must be overcome by Western medicine. Right? Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned doulas and midwives as being an alternative. Um, I don't know much about like, you know, why that's the case. Uh, I know you mentioned you reviewed a lot of OBGYN documents and talked about the lack of agency and all this kind of stuff. Um, but first of all, I wanted to ask, what's the difference between doulas and midwives? <laughs> and then I wanted to ask, um, what are some of the tangible benefits and advantages that a mother might get by having you know, maybe a home birth or a birth somewhere with a doula or a midwife versus going to the hospital? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so the biggest difference between a doula and a midwife is that the midwife is medically trained to deliver the baby and the doula is there as um, someone to help the mom navigate her birth. And so that could be anything from helping her plan what she wants it to look like or, you know, making sure she has, you know, her comfort items with her when she's giving birth, um, different things like that. And there's also different types of doulas. So, you know, there are, um, you can also be like a postpartum doula who kind of, you know, is that support for you after birth and um, just emotional support, you know, um, because not everyone has the same, uh, the same types of resources once they give birth. Um, so they may be single or they might, you know, everyone's circumstance is different. And so yeah. just having that extra layer of support after birth. Yeah. So I also, before you get to the second question, I just asked, which probably by the time we get to it, we will have both forgotten. <laughs> no, I, I forgot what it is. <laughs> okay, so 
First was <laughs> difference between Doolin and midwife. Oh, and it was like the advantages that you would get. Mm. From, okay. But before mm -hmm. we get to that, I wanted to interject and ask you another question. Um, yeah. So I think I made an assumption about doulas and midwives, which was that you can have either or versus going to the hospital. So I guess now I have two more questions. Like this is just polluting. <laughs> so first of all, uh, is it like, I assume that you either have a doula or a midwife, but there might be cases where you have both or do, do, do people do that? Do they have the doula there and the midwife? Do they help each other? Do they have a team? Like what's going on? Like what are the options? Yeah. yeah. So that's the thing. Like that's what I learned in my research is that there are so many different ways and you know, you could have just a doula and have that doula with you when you give birth at the hospital. You could have a doula and a midwife and give birth at home. You could have a midwife and give birth at a birthing center. You can, like, the options are just endless, whether you have one or both or where you decide to give birth. So I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I haven't done that already. And where where did the term doula come from? Like, what? what Where's that? What's the name mean? What what language did it come from? Where did it come? Do you know? You know, I actually did not get that deep in my research, so I don't know. Um, I was planning to bring this up later, but I am planning to read um, Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. And so I feel like some of that may come up in there, mm -hmm. um, but I haven't gotten a chance to start it yet. Well, um, and I'm gonna I'm speak this into existence for you, which probably isn't my place, but I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you decide that you wanna have a podcast, I feel like that's a perfect first topic. So I'm gonna just throw that. <laughs> okay. Do with that what you will, but I'm just saying. So um, the other, the part two of the first set of questions that I asked was, what are some of the advantages? And you, you kind of talked about this, but I wanted to ask it more plainly. But, you know, yeah. a, a mother has an option of, you know, doing some combination of doula and midwife or, you know, whatever the case is that she wants that's going to make her comfortable or she can go to the hospital. So, <laughs> um, you know, part of your whole thesis was um, talking about the ways in which hospitals may not be set up for empowering mothers and that kind of stuff right so i wanted to ask mm -hmm. aside from you know maybe being more comfortable what are some of the benefits that mothers get from having a doula or a midwife or you know whatever the um, situation is yeah so definitely a sense um more of a sense of uh relationship because I feel like a lot of times when you go to your doctor's office or, you know, more so a hospital emergency setting, it's not set up for uh, emotional support. I'll just say that um, it's about, it's mechanical, it's about getting the birth done and moving on. And so, I think that is the biggest benefit out of, you know, taking these alternative methods. Um, 
the emotional support as well as navigating uh, pregnancy health and complications because there are just so, it's like, it's just a lot. And so <laughs> having someone there to be able to say, okay, here's what the options are and I can talk you through the benefit, the cons and pros of both and like help you, you know, it's ultimately up to you, but, you know, helping you make those decisions um, with the most information possible. Um, because I feel like a lot of time is, it's the time factor if you're not in that type of setting. And so decisions are rushed or the patient doesn't know enough about the different options they have. And so, um, yeah, definitely advocacy, navigating their health and their body are the biggest advantages that I would say. Yeah. Okay. So we got away from this um, and went down a different path, but I want to go back to <laughs> your first big answer when I asked sort of about your thesis and you talked about how you came across the needle podcast, the timing was right. You talked about, you reviewed a lot of uh, OBGYN medical documents and that sort of stuff. So I wanted to ask you, like, how did you identify those two sources of information for your research? Um, I know the timing was perfect for NATO, but I wanted to ask sort of how you, um, when, how, what did your, I guess what the question is, Jesus, I can't figure out my words. <laughs> the question is, how did you settle on a research plan? Um, so you had your topic of uh, black maternal health, but how did you, and you had your problem, which was all the, the problems that they were facing, the disparities that they were facing with traditional hospital births. It was timely. You mentioned Serena, you mentioned Beyonce. Um, so you had your problem, you had your topic. How did you sort of chart out the rest of it? What was that planning like? Uh, yeah, so overall, my thesis process from early stage ideas to completion was about 16 weeks. Mm. Um, I took, they were my very last two courses that I had to take. And so in the first course, we worked through those um, very broad ideas. And we actually posted in the discussion posts about what we were thinking and our classmates kind of helped us and guided us to different paths. Um, and then from there, you know, once we got to probably week seven or eight, we all knew pretty much what we were going to research, but even going into that second course, it was still kind of like, um, a discovery process. And so just looking through, we started out with our literature review. And so that helped a lot because, you know, it was like, I would find different things and say, oh, I want to learn more about that. And so um, just building on those different things and doing lots of Google researches. And I kind of thought in my mind, I wanted to hear from these uh, Black women and what they experience. Um, because, you know, that was a part of my research as well, picking a theory, which was muted group theory. And so you know, I really wanted to hear the voices of those women. And so 
I did some Google searches, but you know, those are very uh, personal accounts. And so I knew it was something that I wouldn't be able to find like through Google. Um, so I kind of thought a little bit more about what would be the most, um, you know, it was a very hard and intense and deep topic. And so yes. I was thinking about the most um, exciting way to hear those stories. And so I thought, oh, podcasts are huge now. Let's go to Spotify. And I literally just typed all kinds of different search terms to try to find podcasts that were literally narratives of Black women's birth stories. And so I think I just typed like Black maternal health or Black births and there was natal. <laughs> yeah. So, well, sorry, were you about to? Yeah, know? I was just okay. going to tell you about the, how I decided to do the medical documents as well. Please do. So um, I'm trying to think how I even decided to add that part. Um, I feel like a part of it was my professor telling me that, you know, those eight podcasts weren't going to be enough <laughs> data for my research, <laughs> but also, um, on the parade. Yeah. Um, but also just looking at, um, like I said, the literature review and seeing it. I think one of the facts I read said that some, you know what? I'm trying to think where I found it. I didn't take any notes to tell you about any of this, but <laughs> There was a, trying to think, it was like a panel that I watched on YouTube and it was some professors and researchers and they talked about, you know, this disparity as well. And one of them spoke to how uh, it's still in medical training documents that uh, Black people experience pain differently and that they may not um, experience as much pain as others. And so, you know, that kind of piqued my interest as well. And I was like, is that really still in <laughs> medical documents? And so I think that's where it started. And I, you know, I tried to find as much publicly available documents as I could, which was kind of hard because, you know, it's, you know, it's like trying to go to grad school. You can't really find lesson plans for grad school online. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's how I decided on that source as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. So you have, um, and this kind of ties into my next question. So you have the narratives of the women who have gone through it, um, you know, their stories, what they experience, uh, and then on the other hand, you have how, I guess you have the background documents of the, the people on the other side, right? The medical professionals on the other side and how they're trained and how their training is outdated if they still think that somehow black people don't experience pain as much or sounds very uh, uh, Tuskegee-ish. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. real messed up. So um, two things, you mentioned, Muted group, muted group theory. 
you mentioned that you kind of honed in on narrative. So those um, make me want to ask sort of about, you know, your theoretical orientations, your foundations for your research. So um, you mentioned you were looking for a theory to sort of anchor everything down. You settled on muted groups. So I wanted to ask, like, what is that? Can you explain it to me like I'm six years old? <laughs> um, and then, you know, what else went into sort of, you know, how you grounded your paper in theory? Yeah. So um, muted group theory. I feel like I'm taking my comprehensive exam again. <laughs> I can't remember who coined the term, but um, muted group theory basically says that uh, um, language was created by the dominant group, which is usually white men. And so um, any groups that are not of those, um, you know, like, if they're a different gender, a different race from white or male, that their voices tend to be muted because, um, you know, they, they kind of have to translate what is being said. And also when they hear from white males or people in dominant groups, um they kind of have to do like a translation period and like relay it back and translate it in their mind what they want to say and so it's a lot of um i'm trying to think of how to best explain this it sounds like mental gymnastics <laughs> yes yes exactly and we don't really think about it but it's like there was one group who created language and it doesn't, it only includes their experiences. That's what I'm trying to get at. And so, you know, the experience in my research, the experiences of black women are not included in, you know, more dominant, uh, dominant language. And so, you know, we kind of speak different languages and there's a, uh, um, just cultural differences and, trying to translate yourself so that those others can understand you and trying to understand them. So it's like a whole thing. And um, also there was a portion of the theory that said that dominant groups don't see um, minority groups as important mm -hmm. in terms of what they have to say, because, you know, they created it and this is how it goes. And so that was another part of it too. Um, it's, it's all a little foggy right now, but basically <laughs> saying that, um, <laughs> you know, if you're, it's just, there are always those dynamics of, you know, dominance and minorities. And, mm. you know, it started as, I'm trying to remember. I believe it started as um, gender. And then there was another theorist who came along and said, <clears throat> you know, this applies to other um, socioeconomic aspects as well. So it could be men and women or black and white or, 
straight, transgender, lesbian, gay. And so it's, you know, it can apply to all those different things. Yeah. So you decided on your topic. I'm just recapping. You decided on your topic. You came up with what the problem was. You decided on a course of research. You found all your theories. You, you know, analyzed all your data and all that kind of stuff. So what was, what would you say was the, the number one takeaway um, from your sort of, you know, what was the number one insight or takeaway that from your thesis? I'm only giving you one. Uh, <laughs> he's asking a lot because this, uh, my thesis was like 29 pages. <laughs> and so I'm trying to think about the one thing. Um, man, I think what I would have to say is going back to muted group theory. Um, thinking about including black women more in how uh, decisions are made about medical regulations. That was kind of the biggest takeaway slash recommendation that I made in my thesis. Um, so, you know, giving voice to those who have gone through these experiences and can offer some you know updates and ideas for improvement for um the healthcare system yeah so where are what are you planning on on doing next so you've you've done this gigantic thesis 30 pages of of work and <laughs> I, I only gave you an uh, option to talk about the top. Paper, but <laughs> I know there are more. I just wanted to see what you would say. And feel free if you want to talk about the others. The floor is yours. Um, <laughs> I just, I feel like, um, you know, I, I'm trying to get better at, like, if I have a bunch of recommendations, how do you think about which one makes the most impact? So I wanted to put you yeah. on the spot. Um, but, you know, where do, so where do we go from here? So, how do we sort of start to change this stuff? Like, you know, are you planning on sort of furthering your research or, or doing anything else with it? Like what, what's your, where do we go from here? And then what are, what do you want to do from here? I think where we go from here is, um, you know, there's different layers. And so I think it starts with, uh, women, birthing mothers, birthing or not, uh, doing the research and seeing what those options are. And uh, like just learning more about your body and reproductive health. And yeah, that's what I would say. Um, also, I think the other layer is uh medical the medical professional world and the healthcare system itself um you know i honestly i i don't know where the healthcare system goes from here uh but 
I think there, you know, there is an opportunity to um, recruit more Black women in OBGYN roles. Um, you know, that was a part of what I found as well is that um, if the if the provider and the patient are, you know, if they speak the same language, if they're the same gender, the same race, you know, the more you are like your doctor, the more likely you will have positive outcomes. And so, you know, there's also a shortage of Black women in the OBGYN field. And so, you know, I think that's where the health next, that's, that could be next steps for the healthcare system. Because <laughs> um, I know <laughs> there's this, <laughs> like, you can see it stress me out. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, I can see the stress on your face when I ask you that question. So I'm going to move along. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let you cool off for a second. <laughs> that sigh, I just, I just felt your whole, your whole body. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, first of all, the last question on this specifically. So where can people just find out more about, you know, information on, on black maternal health? Yeah, I would say I would definitely recommend listening to the natal podcast because a lot of things came up in the different narratives where the woman said, well, nobody told me that I would, you know, that this was a symptom of miscarriage and so just hearing those little tidbits of information were helpful for me um and just hearing the things they experienced helps to you know understand some things that you may go through as well um trying to think what else some other resources i mentioned that i went to a preview of the documentary the business of birth control and so um, it's produced by Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein. And so they also did a documentary called The Business of uh, Birth, The Business of Birthing, something along those lines. But um, I learned a lot from that. So I would recommend that as well. Um, I. I have like a list of books that I want to read <laughs> just from attending the different webinars that I've been to. Um, so yeah, I would just say, you know, books, take advantage of those virtual webinars that are free now. Um, yeah. Mama Glow is a, uh, an organization that does doula trainings. And so that's where I have been, uh, that's the organization I've been looking to that hosts the different webinar series where I've been getting the book recommendations. So, gotcha. yeah. Okay. So I want to circle back to this idea of health communications. And so this will, this will be the last of this little section and then we'll talk more about career path and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so health communications. Um, what does so what does that mean to you like just the the idea the topic the field of health communications um you know what is it and what does it take to do it right 
Yeah, so I feel like you can't talk about health communications without health literacy. And so, you know, what that means is uh, making sure that patients understand what, uh, you know, what their level of health is. Um, if, if they have complications, what are the options to help them get better? Not just, you know, the one, the one thing that their doctor wants them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think health communications is uh, pretty broad, I think. But most importantly to me, it is, you know, ensuring access, not just in terms of location, but in terms of, uh, you know, meeting the needs of others. So, you know, anything from people who have disabilities, um, people who, like I was saying before, who, you know, their grade level of reading may not match what medical documents or brochures look like. Um, and, you know, so just things like language when you're creating something or, you know, insurance, that's a whole other thing. That's health literacy as well. Mm-hmm. Just we all know how complicated it is to understand uh, co-pays and premiums and all that jazz. So, yeah, I think health communications <laughs> is a lot, a lot of those things. And I'm starting to see another connection. Uh, so in your bio at the top of the show, uh, I said that you enjoy being a resource to others by simplifying information into comprehensive formats. And that sounds literally like what you just explained. So, okay. Um, and then, so I guess, where are the health communicators? Like, where do they work? And I ask this because Um, I'm someone whose work experience has been very heavily shaped and influenced by agencies. Mm -hmm. So I've been at creative agencies, culture agencies, now I'm at a digital agency. So, and I know that there are some ad agencies who have specific uh, locations dedicated to like health clients, right? So there's a a couple examples of that and now I'm completely blinking. I want to say there's one like I think it's Habas. They have like a health. Uh, they have an agency uh, or an, uh, an office that only works on health clients, right? And so outside of agencies, like, do they work at? So and we'll get to this in a second. I know you worked doing health communications at a telehealth place at a mm-hmm. hospital, but like, so do people who work in health communications typically work at hospitals? Do they work at agencies? Are they like outside? places like where do they work you know that is a (laughs) fantastic question that i'm trying to figure out (laughs) um because i myself have just been doing communications or marketing roles within health settings but i have very rarely seen a title health communications specialist Mm. or health communications coordinator. Um, So I, it bugs me a little bit because we need, and I don't know, yeah, I I don't know the answer to that question. 
Well, let me know when you find that out. <laughs> I'm looking for them too. Um, and then the last thing here that I wanted to ask was, this is a passion of yours. Um, this is something that's driven you in your work pretty much since you got out of school. Um, what are some examples of health communications gone right? Uh, this could be anywhere. I know I'm putting you on the spot, just like an example. Um, and if not an example somewhere else, give me an example of something that you've worked on that you feel like completely like it, like it hit the mark. It uh, simplified the information. It made it easily accessible for people. And uh, you felt like it made a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I feel like uh, one of my very first intense projects before I was even com in communications was a brochure that I did in telehealth. And, um, you know, I, I was an administrative assistant then. So I was doing like scheduling meetings and taking minutes and things like that. And so, you know, there was some times where I would be looking for things to do. <laughs> and so um, one of the providers who offers telehealth or who offered it when I was there um, was a pediatric development specialist. And so she works with a lot of patients who have, um, you know, like autism. And so it was actually her idea to create a brochure to kind of familiarize uh, these patients with what a telehealth visit would look like before they actually had to come in for the visit um, because they would go to, you know, their local um, provider's office and then they would connect with the provider at the hospital through video. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just thinking about that as, uh, you know, someone who doesn't have um, development issues such as that, um, you know, it's kind of a concept to understand. And so, you know, this particular doctor asked if we had the manpower or resources to create something like that. And so I literally went into Word <laughs> and made a brochure. Um, she provided all of the content and the blanks you know, we made blanks in there so that the parent and the child could work on it together and like put their name or put their parents name, put the doctor's name, um, you know, to make it even more interactive. Um, we even, me and one of my coworkers even went to <clears throat> the specific primary care office where they would be going into and we took photos so that we can put it in the brochure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was, I think that was when I knew, like that was health communications to me, meeting the needs of patients who, you know, need those, the extra step, you know, who need explanation before they get there. And so just thinking about things like that, those are the types of, that was health communications gone right, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> that was the question. <laughs> no, I mean, you ended perfectly. Wrapped, <laughs> wrapped with a bow. You even used my own words there. 
So, okay. Um, all right. So I'm going to move into the, you know, the next section. Um, so career path. Um, so you just mentioned you're an administrative assistant in telehealth. Um, earlier, so we know you were a public health undergrad, you were thinking pharmacy, um, ended up sort of wanting to do communications. Um, so can you just talk me through some of the roles you had straight out of school up through now? Yeah, sure. Um, when I got out of school, uh, I was applying to jobs. I So I went to USC, Columbia. <laughs> she said, hesitating. Why <laughs> <laughs> did you say it like that? You said, I went to USC. <laughs> because I was like, are they going to know which USC I'm talking about? But then I remember we talked about how I'm from. <laughs> South Carolina. This so you went time. to so you went to Southern Cal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so USC Columbia. I graduated and um, it it wasn't looking too good. I was <laughs> I was applying. I was doing some interviews and I just wasn't I wasn't getting any jobs. But um, I think actually my first job out was at Blue Cross Blue Shield. I was in their call center and I was working with, so people would call in who have insurance through their employers. Mm -hmm. So they would call about a number of different things, whether it was, you know, why was their bill so high or does my insurance plan cover uh, therapy, um, different things like that. Um, so from there, I knew, I knew that wasn't the place for me because (laughs) everything was so, uh, scheduled. Mm. Um, I could not pick when I wanted to go to lunch. Um, they staggered our lunches. And so most of the time I would eat by myself downstairs in the cafeteria. And I was like, this is, this is not my life. I don't want this anymore. And so from there, I um, was trying to, like, Columbia is just not feeling me. I don't know. So I talked to my parents about it, and my dad was like, okay, um, maybe it's time to start putting some feelers out outside of the city. I was like, okay. I was still kind of a little bit sheltered at that point. Um, but I did it. And then I saw administrative assistant at MUSC Center for Telehealth. And I said, Ooh, this is health and it's entry level. So let's try it out. And I went, I got the job and did that for a while. Um, So when I started there, I was working with providers who wanted to start doing telehealth and so I would go to those meetings that they would have with our team and take lots of notes and it was just very interesting hearing the different ideas they had and there was even some app development involved and so that was fun um and then like I was saying before when I got you know when there wasn't enough work (laughs) to do. I started doing some communications 
um, because our communications team was, you know, like a couple of people. Um, and I remember talking to the manager of that team and I offered to help as long as it didn't interfere with, you know, my actual role. And so I helped with that, um, doing newsletters, social media, things like that. And eventually um, I switched teams once they posted, you know, we made a case that there was enough work for a position. And so I moved to that team. Um, it was called External Affairs then. And um, so, yeah, then I was a, what was I? External Affairs Assistant when I switched over and was still doing kind of the same tasks. Um, and eventually I, you know, I was a, what was after that? <laughs> after that, okay, okay, I made another case for, um, <laughs> I was like, okay, um, we get that this is a role now, but also we are taking on lots more providers who want to do telehealth. Um, we're a national center of excellence now, and my workload is insane. Um, is there any way we can talk about another position that's not an assistant role? And so they wrote up another position for me, and it was marketing and communication specialists. So that came with a promotion and um, a lot of the same work. And so, yeah did that for a while and then from there March of this year I started at First Steps as the um, communications coordinator. Yeah so sounds like you moved up quite a bit at MUSC and then you came over to First Steps um, but one thing I wanted to call out is um, out of 11 episodes you are the fifth person to have a master's degree so almost half which is unexpected well I guess it's six if you include me um so half <laughs> so um where were you just in life in general before you decided to go back to school um and what 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 made you think that you had to go back to school or, or that you just wanted to go back to school yeah so I guess it was 2018 would be two years before this because that's when I started grad school. So beginning of 2018, I was in my external affairs assistant role and I had very regular meetings with my uh, supervisor and, you know, she turn into my mentor and I realized I was really liking communications. And I just remember thinking growing up that, you know, I would hear of people majoring in communications in school, but I was an introvert and I was like, well, that sounds like the worst major for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> just growing into my role, into that role and realizing that you know it wasn't everything that i had thought it was and so um i remember specifically there was a outreach event that um 
telehealth was supposed to have a table at. And I was like, oh yeah, I can, I'll go to the table and set it up and talk to people, whatever. Uh, because I had done some of that before with a nonprofit I was a part of in school. And so I just remember being there and telling people the great news about telehealth and here's how you can get involved and here are a few videos that we have. And so communicate, I thought communications was a scary thing, um, but it was really, to me, getting the word out about resources that people need. Um, and so I talked to my boss about it and she was just like, well, like, I could not believe that was you at that event because <laughs> you just seemed so quiet. I'm like, well, if I'm asked to talk about the right kind of thing, then <laughs> I, I could go on. Yeah. Um, so it was actually her who, you know, talked to me more about how I could, uh, advance my career by getting a degree, um, especially since my undergrad was so broad in public health. And also, you know, I, I was mostly using my experience of, cause my mom was also an event planner back in the day. And so I helped her with some of that and creating invitations and things like that. And so, I've never really had formal communications uh, education. And so um, it was time, it's time to go back. And I knew it was time because uh, I had thought about grad school before, but wasn't really sure uh, what I would go back for. And so um, I was like, okay, I'm definitely sure communications is it and college is expensive. so. <laughs> I wanted to be very sure that this is what I was going for. <laughs> so that's where I was. Yeah. So, um, well, how did you settle on the program that you chose? Um, yeah. What were you looking for in the program, I guess, specifically? And then how did you settle on where you ended up? Yeah. Um, I also talked with my mentor a lot about this and trying to figure out um, the specific degree that I wanted. And so trying to figure out if I wanted a health communications degree specifically or more broadly communications. And I landed on the broad communications because um, I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to lock myself in a box. And so if I wanted to go into different industries, I could. Um, and so from there, I did a lot of Google, Google searching um, and seeing, uh, looking for schools that had completely online degrees um, since I was working full time and I also looked at price. That was a factor. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. I would browse through the curriculum a little bit just to see you know, what popped out at me. And so I landed on Queens University of Charlotte uh, because they were completely online. And I noticed that they had like digital component of their 
program. So that was exciting. And yeah, that's how I picked. I literally had like a Google spreadsheet with all the schools, <laughs> the prices, is it online, things like that. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is one thing that you've taken from your master's um, that has been particularly valuable for you or for your career? Um, I would say one thing, I think the one thing, it can be multiple things. <laughs> no, I, it's very hard for me to make decisions. So I have two. Um, one is time management. Uh, school taught me how to, um, use my empty blocks of time to get things done and so i would wake up early and do work before work do school work before work work <laughs> if i had to mm -hmm. i would use my lunch break to do school work or you know instead of going home and plopping on the couch and watching some netflix i would have to like force myself to do some school work um so yeah time management and the second thing it taught me was you know it confirmed my passion for women's health and reproductive care um through the 16 week <laughs> thesis process <laughs> um because even though it was you know writing a thesis is a lot of work and time it was about a topic that I cared about a lot. And so, yeah, those are my biggest takeaways. Yeah. Okay. Um, last really question in this section, uh, and it's something you mentioned earlier. So you mentioned, and I think it was in the course of talking about how you decided to go back to school. You mentioned uh, you had a mentor who had started out as your supervisor and sort of took on that mentorship role. Um, so, I wanted to ask, uh, how did that come about? Because um, to me, like, so I ask everybody sort of about mentors and I feel mm -hmm. like most of them haven't been direct supervisors. So I mm -hmm. wanted to ask, um, you know, how did that relationship come about? Um, you know, what was your, first of all, what was your relationship like with your supervisor? And then um, how did that change outside? You know, how did the, the switch to sort of being more of a mentor while being a supervisor? Like, what the, do you feel like you were talking to different people? Like, did you feel like you had, okay, now they're my supervisor. Okay, now they're my mentor. Like, is, first of all, how did that relationship come about? And then like, how, how did you sort of navigate um, just that relationship in general? Yeah, so um, I'm trying to remember like how it even began as a mentorship. Um, but, you know, honestly, it was a big deal for me because she was, yeah, she was my first black woman uh, supervisor. Um, and so I really latched on to her and tried to learn about, you know, a lot of what she has experienced in the past, whether it's through, um, uh, you know, the things that she has done in the past in her career, 
Um, she taught me a lot about communications and it was kind of just gradual, um, honestly, because we would meet every week to talk about work topics. And, you know, we had kind of this good balance of mentor and supervisor and also a friendship. And so I was just very lucky to, you know, land upon that and um, just soak up a lot of information from her. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to, you know, maybe junior level people who are looking for that mentor to guide them to, to help them, you know, just figure out work and stuff like what, what, uh, what yes. advice would you give them as far as how to spot a mentor and mm-hmm. then how to, um, how to make that relationship equal? Because I feel like, you know, it's one thing to want a mentor, but that's, that's a big commitment to ask of somebody. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, how, first of all, how do you find them? And then what, what does it take to make it a successful relationship? Yeah. Um, I will say, I don't think it was ever, uh, said out loud, like, Hey, you're my mentor. <laughs> I want to learn from you. Will you be Teach my me mentor? things. <laughs> yeah, I know, like a homecoming <laughs> invite. <laughs> it wasn't like that. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those things where, like, if you know, like, if you know, you know. And it's, there have been situations where I have tried to um, invent mentorships but it hasn't worked out the same. And so I kind of just try to gradually, I just wait and feel things out and let it happen. Like the Tame Impala song. And so um, I, yeah, it, like if someone's teaching you things and you're learning and you're teaching them things as well, like that's a mentorship unspoken, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of a natural thing that you know it's happening. And it's just kind of unsaid. I don't know how to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is to uh, let it happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. got to go listen to that song again. <laughs> okay, so um, as the uh, communications coordinator at First Steps, um, I know that your purview is fairly broad. Um, you have a lot of things you're working on at any one time because you have like 46 clients <laughs> in all of the different counties. Yeah. Um, but what sorts of projects have you been working on lately? The biggest project right now is um, AmeriCorps. And so AmeriCorps is this national service organization where you know there are opportunities all over and so we recently received a grant to implement AmeriCorps into our already existing programs and so um, local partnerships actually had to apply and then our internal state office reviewed and 
some of the partnerships were chosen to uh, recruit their own AmeriCorps members. And so those AmeriCorps members will help with different aspects of their programming. And so um, whether it's family support, community education and outreach, or um, different things like that. And so that has been the biggest thing I have been working on. So, um, you know, trying to come up with the branding for how our AmeriCorps things will look, um, ordering swag for the members, um, formatting handbooks, formatting all kinds of documents, creating recruitment templates for <laughs> the executive directors who were awarded with this opportunity. Um, and so it's, it's an ongoing um, service year through, um, I believe, uh, I don't wanna say, I can't remember how many, how long it is, but it's, it's like a recurring thing if we, if we get it right the first mm. year it's a recurring thing. Gotcha. Yeah. And that kind of ties into my last, uh, this is basically my last question. <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask this through the lens of graphic design, because I know that's something that you're um, getting into something that you do a lot in this role. Um, but what is sort of your, your process uh, from start to finish? So let's say, I guess what I'm asking is your approach to graphic design. So someone comes to you and they say, hey, Tierra, we need, uh, we need some help on this. We need you to create something that, um, I don't know, explains all the things that uh, parents need to do to get their kids ready for kindergarten. And we need it in uh, maybe an infographic or we need it in you know, some kind of some format. It just has to be visual maybe we'll leave it up to you how, how that looks. So that's your brief. It's super broad. <laughs> they probably don't even give you any content. Um, what is your approach? Like what are the steps that you have to take to, to get this thing made? Yeah. So um, once I am briefed, I literally go on Pinterest <laughs> and I look up, um, you know, you said a list of things to help you get your child ready for kindergarten. And so I will literally just go on Pinterest and say, um, education, infographic design. And so that will kind of get my wheels turning about, you know, what I want the layout to look like, um, things like that and what kind of shapes I want to use. And um, it just gives me a good starting point. And so from there, I'll go to, I use, I've been using Canva a lot lately, um, just because it's a lot quicker for me than InDesign right now. Um, since my workload has been a little crazy and so, I go to Canva and I create and I just kind of design until 
I have my final product. Um, I put all my text on there that needs to go there. And then I kind of just design around it. Um, and then from there, I might get some ideas about, oh, well, maybe I want this to go over here, not over there. Um, but yeah, my process is, um, that's pretty much it. Pinterest and Canva <laughs> and yeah. So more often than not, you're starting with the layout and how you kind of want it to feel versus um, starting from like a word doc of just text that has to go into it. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll be given the content um, and that's mostly where the text comes, comes from. Other times the requester will have ideas already, which is great. Um, so they'll say, Hey, we did, this thing last year take a look because i want it to look similar to that so i love those projects because i can just um kind of use it just use it as a template and make it look um maybe just spruce up some things here and there but that's that's a those are good requests <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> Okay, cool. So before every episode, um, I ask, you know, guests the same four questions, you know, what are you reading? What's the challenge you're facing? What's something you're proud of? And a piece of advice that you would give to your listeners. So first up is what are you reading right now? Um, right now, I'm switching back and forth between um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows the very last book in the series. I've been trying to read this series for like four years now. <laughs> I'm on the last book. I've had to restart it a few times. <laughs> but um, I'm reading that and I'm also reading Radical Acceptance by Tara Brack or Brock. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it is about um, self-love and like patience and just like spiritual self-help type of book. Hmm. And what's, what's, what's something that you've taken from that, that it, you think has made your life better? Mm-hmm. Um, that pain is temporary. I think that's the last chapter I read. And so um, whenever I'm, I think, that was a few weeks ago. I had a headache for like three days straight. And so, you know, it kind of didn't work for that situation. But <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this headache is just never going away. Um, but yeah, I tried to, you know, just kind of say that as a mantra in my head. <laughs> like it's only temporary. Just breathe. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fine. This will be a small blip in my memory. Um, looking back. So <laughs> As long as, <laughs> as long as the pain doesn't last for three days. Um, what is uh, something that's challenging for you right now? Um, oh, something that is challenging for me is figuring out how long it takes me to do certain types of projects. Um, and just trying to set expectations when I get requests. 
And so what I've been trying to do is um, track my time more in my calendar. So like if I start designing a document, I'll just block off my day and then I'll go back later if it took me a shorter amount of time and like shorten it up. So it's helping me like kind of figure out the exact number of minutes it takes me to do certain things so that I can adjust my um, conversations with requesters better. Yeah. Sounds like a perfect fix. Um, what on the flip side, what is something that you're really proud of? Um, something that I am really proud of is finishing my master's degree, um, Could, while yeah. working full time. Amen to that. Kudos <laughs> to you. Cause I was thinking about it. Uh, I did my master's full time. I wasn't, I had like a like part-time job. I was a grad assistant and I was doing a little stuff on the side, but to go to work all day and then do grad and then go to class and then do homework. Hey, I don't know how you did it, but kudos to you. Cause that makes me hurt. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and uh, what is your advice for black students who listen to your episode? You know, um, maybe they're still in school. Maybe they've just graduated. What, what is one piece of advice that you would give to them? Um, well, you know, I can never just choose one, so mm -hmm. I have to. Um, and the first thing I'll say is know your worth. Mm. Um, if you're doing a job and you feel like you're doing a lot and you're not getting enough compensation, do the research go online, look up, you know, look around in the market and see what different places are offering in your industry for what you do, because you are most likely right <laughs> that you are deserving of more. So know your worth and stand up for yourself. And that's all I can say on that. Um, the second thing I would say is if you are in a situation right now where you feel like it's, you know, it's not the best work-wise, um, you're frustrated, you want to move on to the next thing, but I would just say that, you know, it might not feel like it right now, but you're there for a reason. Um, looking back at, you know, where I started in the call center in insurance, I was like, how is this going to help me at all? Um, I just want to get out of here because my hours are not flexible. I can't leave when I want. Um, but, you know, there's something you can take out of every experience. And so, you know, just thinking about what I know now about insurance and how it works. Not only does it help me when I'm trying to figure out my health care, but also, you know, figuring out, you know, when people talk about it later about Medicare versus Medicaid or um, just different things like that. It, you know, you need those things to get you to where you eventually want to be. Does that advice change at all for students who specifically want to go into health communications? 
Um, you mean like if they're not in the health field currently? Yeah. I would say yes, because, you know, even if you're not, even if you don't feel like you're learning health communications per se, you're still learning something that will give you an edge later. So if someone says, we need to know about X, Y, Z, and you're like, oh my God, I know about this. I did a whole, I worked at another place for a whole year and learned about this. So there's that. And there's also, um, you know, you get to learn your working style and you get to learn more about what you need from, you know, upper management, um, things like that. So it's never, it's never a lost opportunity. Mm. We didn't get to management in this episode, but you know, we might have to have a part two. Um, <laughs> just I know, I'm like, how long have I been <laughs> rambling today? No, you haven't been rambling. Okay. okay. So um, <laughs> over the course of this, whole interview i have three options for a title of your episode and normally i only have one so i just go with it but since i got you here option one is tiara thomas black maternal health option two is tiara thomas know your worth option three is tiara thomas you're there for a reason and i read those like tom haverford and i just realized <laughs> i did <laughs> but Number one, black maternal health. Number two, know your worth. Number three, you're there for a reason. Which of those do you think encapsulates your episode best? Mm, I am stuck between the last two options. Last two, so know your worth and you're there for a reason? Yeah. Lean in any particular way? Nope. Nope. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with know your worth. Cool. So that is a wrap for this episode of Pay It Forward. Uh, so Tierra, thank you again for joining. Um, this has been amazing. I learned a lot about black maternal health, women's health, health literacy in general. Um, so I want to say thank you for sharing all that. Um, and to anybody listening, you know, please rate, review, like, subscribe, whatever you do to your podcast. Uh, check us out on at pay it for a podcast on social, um, pay it for podcast.com is the website the forward is FWD. And before I let everybody go, um, I was supposed to ask this before I did the, the wrap up, but where can people find you online? Um, I am on Instagram, Tierra J Thomas underscore. I am on Twitter, but I don't use it. <laughs> and I'm on LinkedIn. Gotcha. Well, yes. again, thank you so much uh, for joining today um, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.